Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is live, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. Now on to the show. Moving Iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving Iron time and time again. Good morning and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast Market Rundown with Sean Hackett. Sean, how are you doing this morning? Very good, Mr. Casey. Another good day. Good so. deal, man. Good deal. It's uh, spring break down there in Florida, so I'm sure you guys are probably inundated with, uh, with a bunch of crazy college kids and everything else down there, right? Yeah, the cops are very busy this time of year. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they are. I bet they are. <clears throat> I bet they are. All right, Sean. So we've had uh, kind of had a crazy week here. We've had uh, everything from, you know, just you know the report came out Friday. Had a uh, had a big push there uh, downward. You know, corn finished down I think seventeen cents or something like that on Friday, but. Um, it's rebounded nicely, you know. I think this morning I saw it, and it was up. It was up uh, Monday, down a little bit on Tuesday, but now it's back up on on Wednesday here. So it looks like we're headed back to that to that four dollar mark, and hopefully we can bounce around there for a little while. Yeah, I mean, look, the USDA always comes out with reports, and um, a lot of times the data is very suspect. I mean, they don't really know what the truth is. They come out with their expectations, and the market has to decide whether it's right or wrong. But Clearly, the acreage number, given what we have with the uh, vert weather, continuing to be wet weather, the saturated soils, the acreage number for corn is not huge. And so, based upon that, you know, we have to shave off, we think, at least a couple of million acres off of that number. And you know, that puts us back into a pretty uh, constructive fundamental picture for um, corn going forward based upon that idea. So, so the market overreacted. As it, as it can do. But the good news is we started getting some volatility going on. Well, 50-year low volatility in corn for the last six months, and we're finally breaking loose and rockets are moving. Hey, that's where you get opportunities. So the buy side of the equation, the livestock guys, you know, they're getting a chance to buy corn. They're really they're getting a really good chance to buy in ahead of the growing season. Yep. Okay, so one of the one of the reasons why everyone listening to this needs to go out and, and uh, look at Sean's website um, I, I got your your smart money report for you, for the hog market um, last night and reading through it. Some really good stuff there. Some stuff that I haven't actually thought about or heard about or, or even even given uh, you know a lot of a lot of detail to. But talk about that report and, and what you see happen in the hog market. Well, when we first found out Africa swine fever uh, was proliferating back last August, the market had been speculating on how bad it was going to be, and when would demand begin, and they ran the hog market up on speculation, and the demand didn't come, and we had a big knockdown in the hog market. Then we started getting more tangible evidence that the situation in China wasn't just bad, but we were actually going down the worst case scenario. So, so the numbers that they're willing to tell us, which we are pretty comfortable, are probably not as bad as it really is, says that the reduction in pork supply year over year is going to be larger than the entire amount of pork exported or expected to be exported in 2019. So when you grab your hands around what that means, that means they could buy every 
supply available in the export market, and they still wouldn't fill the supply gap when we lost supply in 2019. Um, of course, it can't be done. Um, and, and so what it means is that they're going to buy as much as they can, and they're going to have to go buy other protein markets like beef, chicken, and fish, try to fill the gap. And so we're really in this situation where the meat protein uh, story here is just getting started, and, um, and it's not like we don't think it's going to peak until the fourth quarter of this year where, 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 where supplies will begin to respond internationally starting in the fourth quarter and, and, and beyond and begin to narrow this gap. What it also means is global animal feeding units are going to go up a lot in 2020. And that means demand for feed, uh, you know, corn and bean meal are going to really, really be strong in 2020. And usually what happens is the market knows it needs it, it buys it ahead of time, and stock files, especially with prices being this cheap. So it's a very, very uh, positive bullish fundamental that we have that um, is going to be a big driver for our ag markets for quite some time. Which which market do you think is going to benefit most in this? Obviously, hogs are going to have a have a pretty good run here. You know, it's going to sound like it's going to be a, a quite a while. I mean, one thing about pigs, they can reproduce pretty quick. Um, they can have multiple, you know, two or three litters a year. They have anywhere from eight to twelve piglets in each litter. So I mean, they can really reproduce pretty quick. But <clears throat> that number is still a big number. How much benefit do you see rolling into the the cattle market? That is, I guess, who's going to be the big winner here? Is, is it long-term cattle or long-term hogs? A cattle to us is the clear winner because we simply can't turn on the supply spigot fast. It's a slow-moving train, and it's going to take a while. So, so just think of this: when we look at uh, uh, beef, I mean, beef production in China, it's going to be flat to down in the upcoming year, and there's nothing they can do to change that. New Zealand and Australian production for, for beef are going to be flat to down. In the next year, there's nothing they can do about that. Um, so the only places that we're seeing growth in beef production is down in Brazil and the United States. And, 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 and that growth is, you know, it's growing, but it's not, you know, it's nowhere near the kind of levels that would be required to handle this massive protein meat gap. So, so for us, yeah, there's a play on hogs short term. There's a play on poultry short term. They're going to have some moves, but, you know, they can really turn on those supply spigots certainly by the fourth quarter onward, or, or, or cattle, it's, it's going to be well into the future. And we think a lot of this demand that's switching over to beef and away from pork is permanent switch. I mean, we're not going to see that go back once this African swine fever situation is, calms down. I think we, we think people are permanently going to be eating more beef. And, and so we're going to be needing to permanently increase our overall production uh, going forward. And that's going to take... Um, by the time and, and, and it's going to change the complexion of, of of the cattle market demand factor for for that we've known in, in for a long time so it's a it's very very bullish for cattle and we think that that's probably your best long-term way to play this overall new african swine flu situation that's how we're playing it for for our customers so do you ultimately think this is what's going to be um kind of long-term well not long-term more short-term gain for the for the dairy market, that is, as these herds become less and less, that this is going to be a, a good option for for some of these these dairy herds to help kind of generate some revenue. Well, we always look at the price of milk relative to the price of cattle. It's a it's a relative price ratio chart that we look that is a great indicator for when dairy farmers are going to call a lot or not call a lot. And so, right now, the prices of cattle um, are, are are relative to milk prices are actually kind of high. 
and we're seeing some record culling going on, in fact, all-time high culling going on in January and February, and the herd in the U.S. is falling well below last year's levels and consistently doing it. If the cattle market keeps ratcheting up, dairy farmers who are desperate to raise cash, bankers that are pressuring dairy farmers to come up with cash are going to continue to aggressively call and not replace. And of course, that just means more pressure on U.S. production um, at a time when we think the demand for and for dairy is going to start to turn up again later in the year. So it's a really, really bullish factor. And if you look at dairy prices in the fourth quarter, they've already broken out on the charts and are starting to hit higher because they're starting to see what's coming while the nearby is still stuck in some of this oversupply that we've been dealing with. So, so the leading indicators are telling us much, much better time for dairy because of this African or swine fever situation. It's really um, it's kind of a blessing that this happened for the dairy industry. And, uh, but, but, but it's, it's here and it's happening, and it is bullish for prices going forward. Okay. All right, so Thursday you have a uh, webinar with uh, University of Arkansas and yes. going over just kind of some of the outlook that you see in the grain market. Um, one one of the markets that I'm kind of curious about because it has, it has an adverse effect on wheat is, is rice. So talk about rice a little bit and we see that headed. Rice is really two different markets. We have the Asian rice market. We have the Western Hemisphere rice market, which means U.S., South America. Asia has been stuck in overproduction. China's been selling a lot of rice. Um, the U.S., however, we have a much different situation with a very, very tight market in South America. They've had two very, very poor crops in a row. Uh, their exportable supplies are going to be way down. In fact, if we look at the Western Hemisphere in aggregate, we expect that there will be a, a, a net importer of rice for only the third time in the last 30 years. Anytime, the last two times we saw this, U.S. rice prices surged um, because exports just really uh, turned up a lot. At the same time, when we look at the planting situation in Arkansas and the Deep South, boy, we just think those acres that were announced on Friday would be hard to uh, to get in the ground and, and much and, and even what does get in the ground we just think it's going to struggle to produce kind of yields that the USDA is starting off with and so we think US production is going to be off you know quite a bit and so for the, the US situation suggests rice prices are going to go higher what we will say about Asia and, and it's important that we're in an El Nino year during a trough in the solar cycle which and look at that Asia drought is on the table during those times, it's a highly, highly correlated event. And so we think there could be a lot of weather problems, especially in India and China over the summer and the fall, and that that would materialize and Asian rice prices to wake up. And then you could have a bull market in rice, not just U.S. rice. But either way, it is a very, very bullish picture that we see right now. So, so how's that long-term affect wheat? I mean, those two kind of go correlate with each other. It's as far as if one's up, the other one's down. If one's up, the other one, you know, back and vice versa. There. Well, the correlation chart of wheat and rice over 30 years, I and mean, they are highly correlated. There can be little lags. One goes up, one doesn't. But I mean, they are, one goes up, the other one follows because it's a substitution factor. If someone in China can't afford rice because it's too expensive, they'll switch over to cheaper wheat and vice versa. So they are one and the same. And so if rice were to get going, um, get itself moving higher and, and getting more higher priced, it would shift a lot of demand over to wheat and definitely help the higher quality wheat market for food consumption. So yeah, we think uh, one will lead the other. In this instance, we think rice is going to lead the wheat market up. Back in 2008, for example, the wheat market led the rice market up. So it's they, they, they kind of tango and they do this dance. We think rice is the leader here. Right on. Okay. 
So speaking of wheat, you know, you look at what's happening in Australia here. Uh, they just kind of finished up their their wheat harvest for um, for 2019, and again, fifth year in a row of, of just epic drought. Um, what how? That's got to be you know that's what the third largest wheat producer in the world or second. Well, exporter wise, exporter wise, I think they're the third largest, largest third or fourth largest exporter in the world. So from an export perspective, they they matter okay. a lot. All right. So. Um, How's that doing to stop? They have never been so bearish grain markets, but when we look at overall grain market ending stocks and wheat ending stocks, they've fallen for three years in a row despite very good crops in the U.S. Um, when we take China out of the equation, you know, they're at some of the tightest levels in 10 years. So the market has gotten really, really complacent because, you know, we've just been in this bearish environment. The dollar's been strong. We've had all this trade disruption. But, but if we ever can break free, some of this negative sentiment, there's really some positive final factors that could drive these markets higher much, much faster than people think. And we think that um, 2019, if we get a rolling over the dollar, which we think is starting to happen, then we could really be setting up for some for some surprise spike trades later in the year. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about some outside markets here for just a second. Um, yesterday, uh, there's an uh, article out from OPEC talking about how they're going to cut back production in West Texas crude took a pretty big jump. So what do you see happen in the oil market and the other energy markets around there? You know, I never really know what the Middle East is going to do or not do. You know, they they have their own agenda. Right. So I, I try to stay out of that. But what, what, what we are starting to see, and I think that, that what I'm comfortable making comment on is uh, fracking has been an unprofitable business for a long time. Yeah. And investors have been optimistic that it would eventually get better than if, if they, and they've been able to been willing to fund these losses for a long time. They're finally saying, you know what? It's time to make money. And so so I was just reading an article yesterday, the day before, where they showed that we're starting to see some significant uh, pullbacks in investment um, and because investors are now wanting a return. And if that trend continues, we actually might see U.S. production flatten out and maybe decline. In fact, it already declined in the month of January and February for the first time in quite a while based upon this withdrawal from investment from the fracking industry. So that's a, a bigger trend that if that would occur, that would really like it a lot because everyone's, uh, the market's been just guaranteeing oh, the, the minute the, the minute the market rises a little bit, the U.S. just floods the market with supply that we right. may be changing gears there and that could really be a game changer if that uh, two month trend were to continue. So we're keeping an eye on that. Right on. Okay, one last thing and then we'll, we'll close it down here for today. Um, Brexit is supposed to happen in seven days and uh, Prime Minister May has asked for an extension, and I don't know if she's going to get it or not, but it's a hard break if that happens, and that's going to be pretty devastating to not just not just what's happening in the United Kingdom, but most of Europe as well, um, and it's going to have a big effect on the U.S. dollar. What, what's your kind of, what, what are you guys seeing right now for the U.S. dollar, and how do you see that's going, that's going to affect the overall markets? Well, all this concern about Brexit has been driving the dollar up. You know, it's the old buy the rumor sell the news kind of a thing, you know, where people, the market buys all this fear that somehow the UK is going to not exist anymore as a country and they're going to sink into the ocean and die. I mean, it'll be bad, yeah. but they will move on. They'll still be an important country. They'll still be an important economy and they'll buy stuff and sell stuff and they'll figure it out. So I think we're probably moving towards a kind of a buy the, you know, buy the, uh, we'll get to a peak of that trade. And then no matter what happens seven days from now, no matter what happens, it won't be as bad as the doomsdayers are saying. Right. If that's the case, we could actually have 
a surprise decline in the U.S. dollar, um, surprising everybody. I mean, that's just what markets do. So, so we're actually a little more constructive thinking that we're going to win this wave of capital flight into the dollar, which has been negative for our market. We might be actually moving towards something different that the markets already trade that, and they may start to trade little things actually will be better a year from now because they'll get their act together one way or the other. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a mess over there, man. I've been watching that here the last two or three weeks, and it's just it's escalating every time to just something new, and it's pretty much a stalemate. And I hate to say it, but I think our politics are wonderful compared to that. <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's a mess. I wouldn't. I'm glad we don't. We don't have all that going on right now. All right, Sean. Well, if folks want to reach out to you and uh, pick your brain about some stuff, or just see what you can offer for, uh, offer for them, how would they do that? Our website is Hackett H A C K E T T Advisors.com. They have great information about what we do, some sample reports, see if what we do might be of service to them. Um, and they also can check out our webinar with the University of Arkansas on, on Thursday if they like. Uh, it's also been recorded and we'll go over a lot of different things with weather and supply and demand and currencies and a lot of things we always talk about and that would be a good opportunity um, for those that want to to see more about what we do and how we think. All right, Sean. Well, I appreciate you being on and we will talk to you again next week. Thank you so much, Mr. Casey. Have a super Wednesday. You too, sir. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast, now part of the Global Ag Network. If you'd like to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com. You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel and watch Market Roundup with Chip Nellinger, Sean Hackett, and Angie Setzer. Also, Tax News with Glenn Birnbaum. Please visit movingironllc.com. Here you can find information, details, and updates for the 2019 Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, Tennessee. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, and globalagnetwork.com. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher, time and time again. Through the years, you'll find us here. Moving.